If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself. But even better, they've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools. And their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, October 18th. And today we have the second part of our interview with economist Nathan Sheets. Yesterday, Sheets helped us understand what the Trump economic policies were all about. Today, we're turning to Biden. These two interviews are going to give you your big differences between Trump and Biden. If you need more information about that, you can hop onto the website, jillonmoney.com. I've been writing about it. But mostly, I just want you to listen to it, see that there's no partisanship right now from Sheets's perspective. He really is uh, very clinical, not so much emotional when he discusses the differences between the candidates. So as always, send us an email if you've got a reaction to this or if you have a question. Our email address, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Here is the second part of our interview with Nathan Sheets. So let's move into the the Biden agenda when it comes to the economy, because obviously one of the things that the pandemic has laid bare are the enormous inequalities that exist. So, you know, whether these are gender wage inequalities, racial inequalities, all these pieces come to a head almost with the pandemic. So talk about how that informs a Biden administration. I think it is the the motivating thought for a lot of the economic policies that we are in a place where the inequality is so pronounced that it is impeding and creating uh, headwinds for the growth of the economy. And specifically, over the last decade or so, the U.S. economy and the global economy have grown more slowly than before. We ask ourselves, what's going on? The problem is that there's not enough demand out there. There's just not enough money that people want to mobilize by spending. If you move some resources, and I think the pandemic has highlighted this, from top income earners to uh, folks in other parts of the income distribution, you create demand. Those higher income folks are likely to save that dollar. The lower income folks are likely to spend it. And so I think that the motivating thought is that inequality is feeding back and weighing on economic performance. It's weakening aggregate demand. And it's important for us to take steps to address that in ways that are conscious of the efficiency of the economy as well. Now, part and parcel to that is, and Biden has said this, and many have written about it, is that tax rates are likely to go higher under a Biden administration. 
where do you think tax policy is going under a Biden administration? How how would you, you know, let's talk about the individuals first, that, you know, all of those tax cuts and the changes in brackets, I presume those are going higher. But where do you think the the real pain is going to be felt for tax rates at what level? I think one framing thought here that's important is I would expect that the Biden administration will start with economic stimulus and they will turn to tax uh, increases once the economy is on a a stronger uh, footing. Now, the specifics of what I'd expect on the personal side is uh, Vice President Biden has indicated that no one making less than $400,000 a year will see higher taxes. So my expectation is that we would see uh, higher taxes for higher earners, probably starting at that $400,000 benchmark, and then becoming uh, gradually more pronounced as incomes rise. So right now, if you are married filing jointly and you are, uh, let's say you make more than $414,701, you're in the 35% tax bracket. And then there's the 37% tax bracket for um, households that make more than 622000 How high do you think these rates could go? I just heard an interview with Bill Gates where he's like, well, you know, I think we could see certainly like go to 50% on a federal level and probably 70%, you know, for the billionaires. Do you think this country could handle that? I think that those numbers, those are very high numbers. And as you get that high, you need to be thinking carefully about how does that impact the incentive of folks to invest, to create businesses to work, uh, and so forth. But I do think for the billionaires that there is going to be a, uh, a meaningful increase in taxation. I don't have a firm view uh, as to how high it will go, but they could see four or five or 6% higher tax rates, I would say. Can we talk a little bit about capital gains? Can we have a conversation, a frank conversation? Almost like I'm having a, a conversation about sex ed with an expert. Can we have a conversation about capital gains taxes? Why not treat long-term capital gains as we treat short-term capital gains? Thanks for asking this question. This is, this is a very important set of issues that I don't think is getting adequate attention. The received wisdom on this and why the tax code looks the way it does is that by having a lower tax rate for capital gains, particularly long-term capital gains, you're providing incentives for investors to put their money into businesses, into productive uses, and that that investment that results will help drive the economy and make the economy more efficient. That's the theory that has motivated that lower tax rate. Let, let's be honest. A lot of people listening to this are like freaking out right now. They're like, oh my God. But what's the difference? What choice do you have? Of course, you're going to put your money. Well, you're not going to invest? This seems insane to me. What your option is then just spend the money isn't so what? Like what's the downside of having higher capital gains rates for the long-term investor? The downside for the long-term investor, I would say is just broadly that they're they're paying more taxes, but as you say, these folks will continue to invest and we're in a place where if anything, as I said, we have an excess of savings in the economy, particularly at that top end and we need more we need more demand. 
So back in the 80s, they were saying, oh, we need more savings. Right now, we need to find ways to stimulate more demand and to incentivize a little more consumption and a little less investment by having a somewhat higher capital gains rate. Seems to me, given our challenges as being justified, and uh, I'd say unlikely to impact critical investments that are actually going to drive growth. What about, let's turn to the corporate tax code, because we were, everybody sort of this had this mantra, oh, the U.S., 35%, it's terrible, it makes people throw their money in these weird shell accounting games outside of the country, even though they really weren't outside of the country, but okay. And now the corporate tax rate is at 21% as a number of CEOs and C-suite folks told me off the record, of course, holy moly, we thought we were going to get 27, 28. We can't believe we're at 21. What happens to these corporate tax rates? I think corporate taxes under a Biden administration are likely to go up. I think the question is how much? Uh, Vice President Biden has indicated to 28%, which is what uh, the Obama-Biden administration had uh, advocated uh, some time ago. Whether they get all the way back up to 28%, I think is an open issue. Maybe it ends up landing a little less than that at 26 or 27. So I think they, they will rise. I do agree with you that it was critical that we get that corporate rate down to 35 where the rate lands between 21 and 26 or 27 or 8, I think is less critical. But we also there need to think carefully as we raise corporate taxes about the incentives that it's creating for firms to hold resources in the United States versus the rest of the world and the impact that it might have on employment. And if anything, I would say I'm a little more cautious on corporate tax increases than I am on increasing taxes and the economic implications of it on higher income earners. Is there any chance under a Biden administration that there would also be some change in the way companies are able to repurchase their own stock or declare dividends that are in shaky industries or anything like that, especially post-COVID? I think the issue of should there be more regulation broadly is one that's going to be very much on the table. But specifically, should there be more constraints on the corporates and the corporate sector in terms of how they manage their balance sheets and their financial positions is one that we are going to hear more and more about in the years ahead. It's well established for the financial sector that those regulations exist. But uh, a little more. Oh, by the way, can I just interrupt? Yeah. With all the belly aching of all of those big financial service companies about how these restrictions were so awful and what they did to them, they seem to be quite profitable. The idea that more regulation has led to some problem, at least in financial services, seems to be now moot. We know that. We know the experiment's over. We had many more regulations. And yes, they've been watered down a little bit, but you know, this the basics are still there about how how big banks and financial holding companies can conduct themselves, and they're still wildly profitable. So, uh, you know, I'm a little bit less worried about the whole regulatory. Should I be more worried about it? And in addition, this is this is critical. 
They've continued to be profitable. Maybe they're not allocating credit to the economy as freely as they were before. And that is a very complicated set of issues. But they survived a huge, enormous economic downturn. And uh, these large financial institutions are in still, notwithstanding where the economy has been and where it is today, uh, continue to be in solid shape. So they've continued to be profitable and they've shown themselves as a result of this regulatory effort to be much more resilient than they were before. And couldn't we use a little more resiliency in the corporate sector as well? Mm, That's the debate we're going to be hearing a lot about, I think, in the years ahead. So I want to talk a little bit getting back to the pandemic and, you know, as an economist, what's more important, having an extra four, five, six hundred dollars a week for individuals or propping up some specific business sectors, whether it be airlines, hotels or even small businesses. Talk about the trade-offs about doing one versus the other. Ideally, we do some of both in that the way I look at it is the households are the source of demand in the economy that will uh, keep the corporates and the firms going. The corporates are the source of jobs and employment that allow the households to have resources to spend. So there's a critical interlinkage between the two. But I think in this environment, if we have to choose particularly during a time of stress like we're in now, I think what you want to do is get the money as quickly and directly to those who are going to need it. And that's the households that need to put food on the table. They need Mm -hmm. to to pay their bills. And so if I have to choose between those two, ideally we do both. But if I have to choose, I'd say, give the money to the households and make sure that they're in a position to be able to uh, feed families pay uh, rent and mortgage payments and uh, meet other financial obligations. So going from there, what would be the downside of having, I mean, forget, I know that these airlines employ a lot of people, but we're clearly in a period where, you know, we are a capitalist society. We don't want to be cruel. So I I totally agree. You got to take care of the people. What's the downside of allowing some of these larger industries to get smaller and consolidate like they do with every economic cycle, just this one's on steroids. What is the downside of allowing some of these small businesses to basically go away and then provide support in terms of these enhanced programs that help self-employed people and gig workers? So tell me the trade-off between putting the money directly into the companies and versus putting the money directly into the people impacted by the companies getting smaller or going out of business. Another risk if we have industries fail or small businesses fail is that we hope at least with the vaccine, I expect over the next, let's say, six to 12 months, the U.S. economy is going to uh, continue to rebound. And during that period, there will be increased demand for airline services and other goods and services in the economy. To the extent that these firms have failed, our capacity to be able to produce those goods and services is going to be more limited. So what we're trying to do for the corporate sector and for the small firms is to build a bridge across this this chasm that's been created by COVID 
so that then on the other side, they can produce and generate jobs and meet the needs of, of consumers. So the loss is that we have a less uh, productive economy on the other side that's less capable of meeting the needs of, of our citizens. What keeps you up at night, Nathan, in terms of the economy? So I think that the uh, sort of the nightmares continue to be, for me, primarily about the virus and how do we get out of this situation that we're in? How long does it take? And what are the longer term ramifications of that? Mm. Uh, Looking over a longer horizon, we do need to worry about household and corporate debt. Uh, We need to worry about uh, productivity and ways to get productivity higher. These issues of inequality we've discussed are are important and they have uh, important social implications for for us. Uh, So there are a lot of other things to worry about. But I still think that acute, pressing challenge that we face from the virus is, is front and center. Well, thanks again to Nathan Sheets. What a great interview. He was really so easy to understand. So I love that. Uh, don't forget that in general, that all of these things that we talk about when it comes to presidential elections and campaigns and tax policy, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't. So I want to be very clear that you should not be messing around with your investments or your portfolio, trying to outguess what's going to happen in the future. Okay. So this is information for you and we hope you take it to heart, but please, please do not try to time the market. Do not try to guess what the next president is going to do. You're often going to find yourself somewhat falling short of whatever your expectation is. Okay. So here's what you have to do today. Wash your hands. You have to wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and just do something nice for someone else today. Thanks for listening. 